So as always, I'll remind you that in addition to welcoming those of you in our audience tonight, um, there are history enthusiasts all over the world who watch and listen to the recordings of these programs online, and that our banner lectures are only possible because of the generous support of the Richmond Times-Dispatch and Virginia Historical Society members. And if you enjoy these programs and aren't a member, please consider supporting them by joining the Historical Society. It's easy to do at our website, www.vahistorical.org. So Richmond's had its share of man-made and natural calamities throughout its illustrious history. In 1811, fire destroyed the Richmond Theater on Broad Street, tragically claiming 72 lives in one of the worst urban disasters in history. As Union forces approached Richmond in the final months of the Civil War, Confederate troops ignited the city in flames, leaving scars that are still visible today. The international Spanish flu epidemic did not spare the city in the early 20th century. The worst airplane crash in Virginia history occurred near Bird Airport in 1961. Local author Walter S. Griggs Jr. will share some of these stories uh, and uh, present the harrowing history of Richmond's most famous disasters. Dr. Griggs is an emeritus professor at Virginia Commonwealth University where he taught law. He's also taught history courses in the Honors College he holds a master's degree from the University of Richmond, a Juris Doctorate from the University of Richmond School of Law, and a doctorate from the College of William and Mary. Dr. Griggs has written several books about Richmond's colorful history, including The Collapse of Richmond's Churchill Tunnel, The Hidden History of Richmond, World War II Richmond, Richmond, Virginia and the Titanic, and Historic Disasters of Richmond which is the subject of tonight's lecture. He's also written books on the Civil War, fire departments, and I had to do a double take when I read this, Moose, and three books about Moose. And he was awarded the Jefferson Davis Medal for his Civil War books and articles. So please give a warm VHS welcome to Dr. Walter Griggs. It's always good to start knowing that your lecture will be a disaster. <laughs> Therefore, the only way I can go is up. Uh, one of the things I learned as a school teacher is that we have to know what we are talking about. You know, I've given lectures on st subjects and students will say, what were you talking about? What does a reductio ad absurdum really mean? So I'm going to tell you what I'm going to be talking about by giving you an illustration. A man enjoyed chewing tobacco. He went into a store. We can call it anything we want to. Chris's chewing tobacco store or something like that and bought a, wherever you buy the stuff, a wad of chewing tobacco. He then opened it and he started to chew. He came down on the right side. And it didn't chew right. You know, the saliva didn't work right. He didn't get the taste 
of the chewing tobacco. So he slithered it over to the left side of his mouth and bit down again, and it still didn't chew right. And he was so frustrated. He kept biting that wad of chewing tobacco, and it never did what it was supposed to do. Then he spit it out in his hand, and looking back at him was a human toe. <laughs> he had been munching on someone's toe. For that man, that is a disaster. <laughs> if any of you chew tobacco, you might want to check that out. Uh, Disasters are caused by many things, by nature, wars, callousness, diseases, and sometimes something as small as a virus. We have a lot of different types of disasters. Some are catastrophic. Some impact only a small group of people. My first personal disaster was when I went to Boston, Massachusetts to recruit people to teach st statistics at VCU. Now, my knowledge of statistics is zero. But I went to Boston, checked into the Sheraton Boston Hotel, made a valiant effort to recruit statistics teachers, failed completely, went back to my room, and at about 2 o'clock, I heard all this noise. And I thought, you know, it's bad enough to be up here, but all this noise and somebody pounding on the door, you know. When I opened the door and that was a fireman, he said, the building's on fire. Come with me. So this Boston fireman led me down the fire escape what struck me was the amount of smoke in that building. And I got very mad because somebody had set the building on fire. And by setting the building on fire, uh, they wanted to kill me. <laughs> but I was a caring person. At 3 p.m., I called my wife, that's 3 p.m., to see if she was watching TV, because I didn't want her to see about the fire without her knowing that I had escaped. That was my first experience with a disaster. The first, and in talking about these disasters, obviously I cannot go into a great deal of detail. But can you imagine a world without weather forecasting? Can you imagine what it would have been like last week to walk out of Noah's and find snow. Weather forecasting makes our lives a lot easier. But in 1771, they didn't forecast the weather the way they do today. Um, what happened was there was a tremendous flood in the Shenandoah Valley but nobody in Richmond knew anything about it. And in May of 1771, the James River, uh, it's West End Richmond, the river, um, 
overflowing. It was over 40 feet above flood stage. Uh, the, rich, uh, the newspapers in those days recorded it as the greatest flood the James River has ever seen. Ships at Shirley were driven across the river. 14 slaves at one plantation drowned. Although it has largely been forgotten, it was the worst flood that ever hit Richmond. Um, it was a disaster. And it's not well remembered. There's one monument on Turkey Island that you can hardly find that says that it was the greatest flood that we ever had. The tragedy of it is no one knew it was coming. There was no preparation. We didn't have Andrew Frieden or <laughs> the others. Some disasters are preventable. In 1863, one happened on Brown's Island. Now today, you know, in the 1840s, Brown's Island was home for ducks and turtles and whatever. Today it's a venue for various kinds of activities. But in March of 1863, Brown's Island was the Confederate laboratory and young women between the ages of 12 and 20 were assembling various types of munitions. They liked young women because they had nimble fingers and were quick. One young woman named Mary Ryan was trying to get a piece of explosive out of a piece of wood. Now, she had been told that what she was doing was extraordinarily dangerous work. But Mary Ryan took the piece of wood with the explosives in it. Nothing happened. Nothing happened. Mary Ryan is in the ceiling. And then there was another explosion. And all of these young women were burned tragically. Um, there was one explosion and then another one. Mary Ryan had caused the worst explosion on the Richmond home front during the war. Uh, it's incomprehensible how these people were burned some women who could not swim jumped into the James River. Um, some were burned from head to foot. It was, a, when you burn your finger, it hurts enough. But when your whole body is burned, it's beyond comprehension. They interviewed Mary Ryan, who survived for a while. 
And she fully admitted what she did. Why would you do something that could only be called stupid? Maybe she got bored, frustrated, tired. Maybe she just got callous. But 45 people, mostly young women, died in that explosion. I wanted to see the grave of Mary Ryan in Hollywood Cemetery. It's unmarked. You have to almost have a guide to show it to you. There are no flowers, nothing to indicate who his grave it is. It's just a patch of ground frequented generally by squirrels and birds. But this was a disaster caused by callousness. Now, if you look around this room, you see exit signs clearly marking how to get out of here. Whether there's a disaster or a lousy speaker, you know how to get out of here. <laughs> In 1811, before we had television, we had the theater. And it was a source of entertainment for Richmonders. The theater in question was located at Broad and 12th Street. Though these were the days before we had various codes to protect and create a safe environment. So, there were only three exits, narrow door frames, dark lobbies, winding stairways, and that was about it. On December the 26th, the day after Christmas in 1811, lots of young people and a lot of fashionable Richmonders went to the theater to see the play. The play was called The Bleeding Nun. Never seen it, don't want to see it. <laughs> but they were lifting candles on the stage, candles, mind you, and they hit some flammable fabric. The man that was raising the candles tried to lower the candles, but it was too late. But the play continued until the actor on stage started being hit by falling embers and he said, the house is on fire. With that, there was nothing but panic. People couldn't get out. People would fall down trying to get down the steps and be stomped to death. The entire theater was on fire. People had to make the decision, do I stay in this theater and burn up, or do I jump out of it and have a chance at life? Some people recorded the fact that some people just stood there 
and were burned up. Gilbert Hunt, an African-American man, caught 12 women who were dropped out of the theater by Dr. James McCall. He was a true hero. People were so afraid they were crazed with freight. They couldn't get out. They were falling over each other. They were stomping on each other. It was decided, since most of the bodies could not be identified, they were buried together in two coffins in what had been the pit of the theater. Chief Justice John Marshall led a drive to build a church as a memorial, which eventually became Monumental Episcopal Church. The um, church today is no longer used for worship on a regular basis. And people have largely forgotten that tragic night. But when you drive by that theater on Broad Street, maybe you ought to remember all of those people who went there for a good time and died in the worst possible way. Why did this happen? People didn't think about fires or escapes. The next fire is one that all of us know about, the Great Richmond Fire of April 1865. We had been engaged for four years in, depending on your viewpoint, the war between the states, the Civil War, the war for Southern independence, uh, the war of the rebellion, the big invasion. I just made that one up. Uh, <laughs> on April the 2nd, 1865, Jefferson Davis the president of the Confederacy went to St. Paul's Episcopal Church for worship service. It was a beautiful Sunday. The rector used as his text, the Lord is in his holy temple and all the earth keeps silence before him. President Davis was sitting there when the usher came or sexton and tapped him on the shoulder. He immediately got up and left. He was handed a note that said that Petersburg had fallen and there was nothing to stop the Union Army from coming to Richmond. At Second Presbyterian Church, a note was handed to their minister, Moses Hogue, who said, go quietly to our homes and whatever may be in store for us, let us not forget we are Christian men and women, 
and may the protection and blessing of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost be with you all. People did mill out on Grace Street. They shared notes, and they wondered what was going to happen. <coughs> in the African-American churches, they saw this in a different way. They saw liberation. They were singing songs like John Brown's Bonnie. By Sunday afternoon, Jefferson Davis and the Confederate government headed to Danville and left instructions to destroy the tobacco warehouses and get rid of all the whiskey. Somehow or another, they assumed that the Union Army was going to be a bunch of drunks, <laughs> and they had to get rid of whiskey. That was a big, big thing. Um, well, they poured the whiskey out in the street, and good Southerners started lapping it up like dogs. <laughs> I've even read one story where a pig got drunk. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, have you ever seen a drunk pig? How does it get its four feet moving in the same direction? Well, the Yankees weren't the only ones that got drunk. Um, the warehouse fires got out of control. There were explosions. The Confederate ship CSS Virginia II blew up. The armory blew up. The powder magazine blew up. And Richmond has had no idea what was going to happen. They left Captain Clement Sullivan in charge to blow up the Mayo Bridge. And after the last people left, he made that famous statement, I blew her to hell in the Mayo Bridge. The mayor of Richmond, Joseph Mayo, met the Union Army coming into Richmond and asked them to take control of the city. As they came in, they played such songs as Yankee Doodle, The Girl I Left Behind Me, Dixie, and the Union soldiers felt like they were treated like royalty. Uh, for the first time in four years, the Star Spangled Banner was played in Richmond. One young woman wasn't happy when they took down the Confederate flag over the Capitol building. Uh, she said, the Yanks came in and first of all placed that horrible stars and stripes which seemed to me to be so many bloody stripes over our beloved capital. <clears throat> oh, the horrible wrenches. But they saved Richmond. Richmond suffered a catastrophic fire. The fires were finally extinguished by blowing up buildings, pulling down buildings, water, but there was perfect pandemonium. 
the Union Army saved Richmond. Abraham Lincoln actually came through Richmond and saw all of the damage and all the destruction, the wipeout of the business school, uh, business building, all of the businesses, and then Robert E. Lee surrendered, and the war was over. You can walk through Capitol Square today and see the ghost of frightened Richmonders, long-dead soldiers, women dressed in black, and newly liberated slaves. But you won't see old Virginia. She died in April of 1865. I'm going to think a minute. This is, this is a tough one. It, I could open it a lot quicker. Good water. <laughs> the reason why I'm afraid of this one is it involves politics. But one thing we know is I'll be able to tell you how this turned out, which is what I like about history. I know how it turns out. Virginia was under the control of the Union government. Capitol Square was an iconic place with beautiful buildings. You could hardly take a step in Capitol Square without touching history some way or the other. In the state capitol in those days, the legislative body, the executive body, and the judicial body all met in the same building. The court met over top of the House of Delegates. When Virginia re-entered the Union, the first thing that Virginia wanted to do was to reestablish its own government. And under what was called the Enabling Act, a new council was appointed, and there was a new mayor, Henry Ellison. But there was one problem. The mayor appointed by the Union Army wouldn't get out of town. His name was Henry uh, George Cahoon. He would not give up. Can you imagine what it was like to be in Richmond with two mayors? I started to say sometimes it's bad enough to have one, but. Uh, <laughs> with two mayors, two police forces, two jails. Richmonders backed Ellison. They said no man ever lived. They excelled Mr. Ellison. Richmonders didn't know much about Mr. Cahoon, but um, someone said he was a Yankee camp follower, and nine-tenths of all Richmonders thought he was stupid. 
and worse. Having recently come through a political campaign, I would like to read you what Richmond is saying about this union mayor. He should be flocked and feathered. He is like a miserable vulture. He should get out of the country for the country's good. His main supporters are from Oakwood Cemetery, Hollywood Cemetery, and Shaco Cemetery. Well, these two mayors decided they were to solve their problem by having the Virginia Supreme Court of Appeals hear the case, which they did. On April the 27th, 1870, the decision of the court was going to be rendered. And you can imagine how the courtroom was packed with people who wanted to hear the decision of the Supreme Court. For years, it had been noted that the floor in the courtroom sloped. But not many people got there, so nobody made a big deal over it. Uh, but now, the place was packed with people on a floor that for 30 years had been suspicious. Suddenly, the floor gave way, and 355 people fell from the Supreme Court down into the hall of the House of Delegates. Fortunately, there was no one down there, but they were, the people were dead, they were dying, they were injured. 62 people died when that floor collapsed, and 251 were injured. The newspapers spared nothing. They talked about blood, crushed bodies, brains, plaster. The dead and the dying were generally placed around George Washington's monument along with their clothing. Newspapers across the country used such terms as death stroke, terrible calamity, frightful accident, Richmond in mourning, the great horror, terrible calamity, awful crash. Now, what happened? They found a beam broke. And when they found the beam, they noticed that there was a cut mark in it. Whoever had cut that beam had made a misstroke with an axe that weakened the beam many years ago. What someone did years ago resulted in this catastrophe. Another theory was that the board holding it up were braced like that. And over time, the board bent, came loose, and fell down. Everyone agreed it was poor construction, faulty design, 
and the weight of the people. To no one's surprise, Henry Ellison was named Mayor Richmond. We don't have any monuments or anything to the other guy. He just left. And it was a long time before they put any marker in memory of what happened. There is a marker now in the Capitol that marks the scene of what has been called the Capitol disaster. Ladies and gentlemen, you ever worried about something? Do you ever get all uptight about things that may or may not ever happen? You know, um, I do. I know National Squirrel Day is Friday, and I'm worried that <laughs> that I might not find enough squirrels. <laughs> well, one of my major concerns is when I go to Shaco Slip to eat pizza. I love going down to Shaco Slip to eat pizza. And if you've been there, and I'm sure most of you have, you'll notice there are railroad viaducts all across those buildings. This is part of a railroad viaduct system that was built in 1901. Um, it doesn't cross the James River. It parallels it. And when I'm eating my pizza, I really enjoy hearing a train go over the building. Then I start thinking. Am I going to have pepperoni or am I going to have locomotive? <laughs> well, I did some research. In 1903, a boxcar fell off of that trussle. It was full of concrete. The concrete boxes broke open. It was raining. Nobody was hurt. Uh, but everybody looked at the street to see the concrete all over the place. In 1912, a couple was eating in a restaurant, and another car fell off the viaduct. They were upset because it disturbed their lunch. <laughs> Once again, nobody was killed. But um, when you go down there to eat, remember, it could happen. <laughs> the Spanish flu. My first memory of the medical profession was a nurse who was going to take some of my blood. She had a cork stuck in a test tube with a needle through the cork and alcohol in the test tube. She took the cork out of the test tube, stuck it in my little finger, or one of my fingers, wiped it off, put it back. 
I suspect she used that needle till it either rotted, rusted, or somebody died from it. But that was my first memory. Now, the flu epidemic, I sort of grew up with this because my grandfather had it. And he blamed, not blamed, he attributed his survival to his religious faith. He kept telling me he went between life and death. But um, the great flu epidemics hit in 1918, and it goes by a number of names. La Grip, the flu, Grip, Spanish influenza. Um, before it finished, it had killed more people than any other plague in human history including the Black Death. Um, from what we know, the flu started in Camp Funston, Kansas in 1918. We were in World War I, soldiers would get it, and then they would transfer them to another camp, and they would get it. And it wasn't long before it got to Petersburg and that's pretty close to Richmond. Um, the first flu appeared at Camp Lee in September of 1918. A few days later, there were over 1,000 cases. The city of Richmond tried to find a way to deal with the flu. And their way was to write poetry. Now, this is going to be tough to say. If you dodge the Spanish flu, do not sneeze and do not chew. Any gum in public places, then the microbes won't get you. Now this is the hard one. If you wheeze the weird condensa of Castilian influenza, but the doctors can't tell when's them. <laughs> uh, by the end of September, there were thousands of cases in Richmond. It was generally considered the flu if your temperature was over 100 degrees, <clears throat> you had a sore throat, you were exhausted, you had headaches, pain in the limbs, bloodshot eyes, cough, nosebleed, and heaven help you, you might turn blue. Now, how did you get rid of it? There were patent medications out there that unfortunately are usually not available to us today. There was Vicks Vapor Rum, which is still around. Earl's Hypocon. It chases away the troubles with the flu. I've got to be careful how I pronounce this one. P. Runa. It sends a lot of doctors out of business. Foley's Honey and Tar. Sounds terrible. It puts a healing coating on your throat. Holly hose dental cream. It catches the flu in your teeth. <laughs> and pierces pleasant pellets. I won't tell you what they knew. Um, well, anyway, the flu epidemic continued for quite a while until it finally just went away. Um, 
the old John Marshall High School, Bellevue School, and Baker School were all used as hospitals. And young girls in those days would jump rope. And here's one of the things they jump rope to. I had a little bird, its name was Enza. I opened the window and influenza. <laughs> well, anyway, we got rid of the flu. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because I'm running out of time, but um, the Churchill Tunnel was always my favorite disaster. It started construction in 1872. The rector of St. John's Church had a sermon on building your house on firm foundations. A portion of the tunnel came in in 1873, and his house went into it. <laughs> to work in that tunnel in the 1870s, you didn't have to be in very great shape. One man was blind. He never saw the locomotive. Another one was deaf. He never heard dynamite. And the others are too disgusting to talk about. But in 1925, the Chesapeake and Ohio tunnel came in. And for nine days, they tried to rescue the fire engineer who was trapped in the tunnel, along with two other laborers. The tunnel came in because it shouldn't have been built in the first place. It was built through mud, and it caved in under Jefferson Park. Now, if you want to do something interesting, go to Hollywood Cemetery, set by the mausoleum of Mr. Poole. The story is told that the fireman on that train caught fire, runs down Main Street, and goes into that mausoleum on a regular basis. If you see it, you know, give me a call. <laughs> the last topic is the crash of an airplane outside of Bern Airport. If I got on an airplane and I saw the pilot carrying a book entitled The Idiot's Guide on How to Fly an Airplane, <laughs> This is one idiot that would have gotten off pretty fast. What happened was there was an airplane, an Imperial airliner, that was a Constellation, which was a popular airplane. Unfortunately, the crew did not know proper procedures. Over Washington, the third and fourth engine went out. They did not know how to restart him. They decided to land in Richmond. And then the number two engine went out. They never made the runway. The reason for this tragedy, which killed about 80 soldiers, was that the flight crew was ignorant of what they were doing. They didn't know how to fly the plane. And the reason is self-explanatory. 
In those days, the government had a policy of assigning flights to the airline that gave the cheapest rate. Now I want to conclude with something I've never told anybody. Maybe I shouldn't tell y'all. But with the Russians hacking everything, but I will tell you this, it's a true story. When I managed to escape from law school, I got a job working for the Virginia Supreme Court. And one of my jobs was to run the library. And generally, we had seven to eight lawyers in there in blue suits, brilliant men, everyone. But then one day, something unusual happened. There was a man sitting over in the corner drawing pictures. And there were three other men there in raincoats, and it wasn't raining. They were reading newspapers. They weren't near law books, and it looked kind of weird. Why would three men in raincoats be sitting in a library reading a newspaper and another guy sitting over in the corner drawing pictures? Well, before long, raincoat one came over to see me. He said, if that man asked you to make copies for him, make one for us. I said, I can't do that. Federal Bureau of Investigation. Yes, I can handle that for you. <laughs> Waive the fee. Sure enough, he came by, gave me a bunch of drawings, turned them over to the FBI. Then I finally got him enough courage to say, what was going on in here? He said, that man over there had a theory that if Air Force One flew into Richmond, and some of you might remember the light on top of MCV that used to rotate. And there's another one on top of Burn Airport. He was convinced if those two lights hit, Air Force One would explode. For that, I feel like I saved the nation. have any questions that are simple? <laughs> Just one announcement before we take any questions. If you parked in the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts parking deck, I just want to remind you you've got plenty of time, but they do close at 7 o'clock. So just be aware of your time so you don't get locked in there. Okay, now to our first question in the back corner. Dr. Griggs, a uh, fascinating, entertaining talk. Tell us how you came to be interested in disasters and how you selected the ones that you chose to write about. Um, I'm a native Richmonder. I've always loved history. And I, I've just, all my life, all I've ever done is read history books. And I started figuring out that 
some of these disasters, and a lot I wrote about, I didn't talk about. Um, you know, people had forgotten them. I think there are lessons to be learned from them. Uh, the ones I selected were obviously, you know, the burning of Richmond had to be there. The monumental church. I didn't really have to do the pizza thing, but <laughs> but it's just I've just always had this tremendous fascination for history and Richmond history. What was the final tally of the uh, Spanish flu deaths? Um, I got that here. Oh, I can't do that. Um, hang on, don't go anywhere. <laughs> Worldwide, it killed more than 100 million people. It was a nasty thing. Yes, ma'am. About a thousand. Uh, I made the observation there are no monuments to those who died, but there are a lot of tombstones. Um, what kind of fascinated me, <clears throat> like I said, I couldn't get to everything. Uh, all churches, stores, and what have you had to close to stop the spread of the flu. Um, anyone else have a question? I'm curious why you didn't talk about the balcony at the Capitol collapsing. The balcony? Yes. 62 people were killed. I just looked it up. Yeah, I just selected. Okay. <laughs> Anyone else? Well, this has been a privilege.